Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential, the number one EU politics podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, and guess what? Politics is still weird this week. In this week's episode, I speak to Amélie de Montchalin, a French member of parliament with Emmanuel Macron's En Marche Party, about why she thinks it's undemocratic to finalise the EU's next seven-year budget ahead of the 2019 EU election. Following that, our feature interview is with European Commissioner for Agriculture, Phil Hogan. He talks to us about farms, Brexit, trade, and whether the EU's going to get that budget done before the European election or not. In the week's other news... I don't know if I would or would not have anything new to say about Donald Trump being trumped by Vladimir Putin in Helsinki. But I will tell you this, if it was me on that stage, I would have figured out what I wanted to say and I would have made sure I said it correctly before I got on the stage. The big news in Brussels was of course the EU's biggest ever fine against Google for three types of abuse of its dominant position in Europe's search engine market. The 4.3 billion euro fine is roughly double the previous biggest EU fine, also against Google, and is the latest in a series of 10 or so fines against American tech giants. Google argues their methods do not harm consumers, but the EU says that even if that's true, they're harming innovation and are anti-competitive, so it breaks EU law. In happier news, July 21 is Belgian National Day, so best wishes to our home and the country with the third best football team in the world on your national day. Now it's time to hear from Amélie de Montchalin, who is a member of the French National Assembly and on the Finance Committee and very active in European discussions. Amélie, tell me, what's your concern about the next long-term EU budget and the timeline and the process for agreeing that? I think I have two main concerns. The first is to hear people at the Commission saying it should be voted at whatever cost before the May 2019 election. I think it's a big mistake to say to people, please come to vote, but everything is already decided. So whatever your choice, we know how much money we will give to whatever policy. 
And the second concern is how little flexibility it still has inside in the construction, because we don't know what will be the crisis or the topics on which Europe will have to spend money in, let's say, uh, 2023, 2024. It's very far away. If it's voted in, let's say, March 2019, it will mean that you will have two European elections during which in fact, the vote will not change anything in 2019 plus the 2024, because we will be both in the middle of a budget implemented without any discussion at the parliament, just elected. And that is not a situation that would be acceptable in any national parliament, is it? I mean, as a national MP, you see it as your right and your obligation to be involved in these discussions and to reflect your constituency. So I'm the majority whip at the finance committee at the French National Assembly. If I was in this position with the objective of implementing a budget which will have been defined, let's say, three years ago by Hollande and his friends and me as a newly elected deputy with En Marche having to implement a budget which I didn't vote for, even maybe I voted against or at least I proposed with my party another option, it just means that there is no sense in having, you know, any democratic vote because you're voting things which you didn't decide and on which we don't have the democratic mandate. For me, the big question is also, if the Commission and Germany at some point decided to have this budget voted very quickly, it was because they were thinking that it will give less leeway to Eurosceptics. I think it's making a gift to Eurosceptics to say to them, we are organizing big democratic elections, but they will have no consequences. Then you give right to those saying that European institutions are undemocratic, that they are dictatorial, that they are technocratic, because all the output of a democratic choice, which is which policies do we want to conduct with which money, just has no sense anymore. And then there is one final risk that's maybe worth considering, which is that in the rush to try and complete a budget, I know that's the push from the institutions in Brussels, it's less accepted by all of the national leaders, they are keeping their options open in that regard. But what you might see is the flexibility that's been built into the Commission proposals disappear. I mean, it's been widely praised that the Commission has made the budget proposals more flexible next time round. But in the rush to do a deal, they might shrink the budget, cut out the flexibility, and then you're almost left with the worst of both worlds. This is what happened in all final runs to all the budgets in the last 10 to 15 years. The flexible lines were those where the country said, OK, We say yes to the rest, but we cut these lines because it's too much money to put together. And all the new issues around migrations, around climate change, around also infrastructure needs, we don't know today what we will need as Europeans as a strong policy or strong policy signal in four, five, six, seven, eight, nine years, which is very far away. Amelie, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Next up, I'm speaking with European Agriculture Commissioner Phil Hogan. Joining me now on EU Confidential is Commissioner Phil Hogan, the Commissioner for Agriculture and the Commissioner from Ireland. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Ryan. And I should start by saying happy birthday. 
Thank you. I feel a little bit older today, especially after having one or two extra drinks than I would normally have. Well, I would never begrudge you those extra drinks. That's an important way to celebrate. Maybe we should oh, look at that. We've got we've got advisors in the background going. You can't say that. You can't say that. But I, I think you should say I'm everything fine. you want. I'm fine. Yeah. Well, let's start with the common agricultural policy. That's the flagship policy in your portfolio. It's one of the biggest areas of spending in the EU, and you're trying to push a big reform through at the moment. And I was very interested in the competitiveness and the climate aspects of that. Because normally we think of the EU and we think of subsidies to farmers, but we don't think of this extra layer of how to engineer our society and an economy. So walk us through a little bit of what you're trying to do there. Well, I suppose since I became commissioner, I've been hearing stakeholders, whether they're in parliament or whether they're in council or farmers, talking about the complexity of the policy. And uh, we decided at the beginning of our mandate that we would simplify and modernise the policy based on those particular concerns that were being expressed right around the European Union. So we needed to propose something different as well in terms of how we deliver the policy. Also, we had to be conscious of the international agreements and the sustainable development goals that were agreed in 2015 to include agriculture more substantially in the policy offering to meet those particular international objectives as well. We needed to see our farmers being part of the solution rather than part of the problem. And thinking on something like the generational gap that is emerging in farming, like there's a real struggle to get a new generation of farmers on board. And I I come from Australia, you might have guessed from the accent. And so I know from the experience of Australia and New Zealand that if you do force people to be a bit more competitive, you can have a renewal. Is that something that's in the back of your mind as well, that there's got to be new ways of farming if that sector is going to thrive in Europe? Well, if you are interested in retaining our European Union agricultural competitiveness, we have to modernise the policy and embrace new technology and digitisation, precision agriculture, the use of big data. And younger people, of course, are more receptive to those new technologies than perhaps the older generation. Equally, I believe that they are, you know, it's important for the vitality, vibrancy and survival of many rural areas that we actually embrace generational renewal as a key objective of the new CAP. And for the first time, we are prioritising generational renewal as a, one of the nine objectives uh, that our CAP strategic plans from each member state must actually satisfy the European Commission. And I'm not the expert on agriculture, but is that something new, getting those national plans in place? Because it, it strikes me that agriculture can be so tense and divisive, the politics of it sometimes, and that one of the good things of this commission is that it's trying to make the national governments and national and local level actors own some of their European Union a little bit more instead of having this dynamic where people can blame Brussels for imposing things. Yes, and that was another reason why we're moving from a fundamental shift from compliance and rules based in Brussels and the member state to performance and results. And at the moment, we don't have the type of targeting of the supports or the policy in such a way that we are actually able to measure if we are achieving our objectives. Everybody agrees that the environmental objectives that we set on the last occasion are not being met by the greening measures. The European Court of Auditors have confirmed this as well. So we are responding to these concerns and criticisms by a new delivery model, by a move away from compliance to performance, and by asking member states to be more responsible and accountable in meeting targets. And we are going to incentivize the targeting of these measures with the member states by giving performance bonus at the end of the planned period. A bit of the broader political context is that the cap reforms at some level are linked to the next seven-year EU budget. The idea is that they're going to be implemented in the new budget. 
And we saw some rumblings out of the EU Leaders' Summit where the leaders at the national level weren't necessarily committing to getting this budget agreed by the European elections next year. How dependent on the budget is your reform proposal? And what's your sense of the timing here? Is there a risk that you won't get the reform done before you finish your first mandate at the end of next year? Of course, farmers are concerned about money and any stakeholder in the agricultural community wants to maximise the financial resources in the policy. But it's a parallel exercise we're engaged in in trying to ensure that we have better delivery of the existing resources, better targeted and focused in terms of our financial and policy delivery towards our farmers in order to achieve the nine specific objectives on economic, environment and social that we have outlined in our legislative proposal. And it's up to the member states if they want to contribute more into the policy financially. It's up to uh, the European Parliament and the Council to decide whether they want to proceed quickly or slowly. But I would have thought that it was very important for the farmers and for our our rural communities that we have certainty, stability and predictability in the context of Brexit and in the context of all of the topsy-turvy in the world order at the moment. Uh, And I would expect that the Council and the Parliament will reflect this as time moves on. So they will get it done before elections? I expect, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that the MFF will be concluded before the European elections. And uh, you know, there is a strong push now by the main political groupings in the Parliament, which I detected this week in Strasbourg, to make a big effort as well in making progress on the completion of the policy options that we've put on the table. Now, if we think a little bit more globally for a minute, maybe get on to trade in a second, but I was looking through your Twitter account and noticed that you made mention of Africa a couple of times. And it struck me maybe there's a link between agricultural policy and this wider migration challenge that we've got as well, where maybe we have like three objectives was my sort of outsider observation that obviously the EU wants to export its agricultural products. It wants to support development in Africa. And we have to come up with holistic solutions to this migration challenge. Uh, Do you see agricultural policy fitting in there to help solve maybe all three of those issues? Well, in 2015, we succeeded in getting agriculture recognised as an important contributor to helping the people of Africa not only to develop policies around food security with the help of the European Union, but also to be able to have livelihoods generated in many countries of Africa where the jobs are badly needed, especially for young people. So the Valletta outcome in 2015 signalled for the first time the important role of agriculture in terms of food security and dealing with the causes of irregular migration. Secondly, we have established a Rural Africa Task Force earlier this year, which is chaired by Tom Arnold and has 11 experts right around the European Union, who are going to come forward with recommendations at the end of this year about how agriculture can help in cooperation and coordination with the African Union to develop the new technologies and modernisation of the policies in Africa to meet the Valletta objectives that were laid out in 2015. So we see the European Union you know, working closely with the African Union, not in any way to, you know, from the point of view of European economic advancement, mm-hmm. but rather in a coordinated way to the African Union to ensure that the livelihoods of ordinary people, that the economic well-being of our nearest neighbour in Africa is actually benefiting. And ultimately, of course, that will have a positive impact on the quality of lives of the people of Africa, but equally on helping them to be able to deal with the worries and with the concerns that everybody has in relation to irregular migration. Now, another part of your job that I think not many people know about, but 
we think of it as pretty significant here in Brussels when we're watching all of the, 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 the trade deals and potential trade wars going on, is your role in landing trade agreements. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you work with Cecilia Malmstrom there? You know, sort of how much are you at the table and how much is agriculture uh, one of the more difficult files in getting those agreements done? Well, you won't get a trade deal without actually having a satisfactory outcome in agriculture. You won't get a mandate from the Council or the Parliament uh, or approval subsequently for any trade deal from the Council or the Parliament unless there is the sensitive issues around agriculture are actually meeting the political objectives of those stakeholders. So we have offensive interests and defensive interests, depending on the mandate on the Council and depending on what part of the world we're negotiating. We've had a very successful outcome working with Mrs. Malmstrom with Japan and Mexico in the last year. We are very offensive in both countries. And this has helped to unlock many of the opportunities in the industrial sectors and in the financial services sectors in public procurement. The fact that we are able to offer some key concessions in key commodities for those countries. So we work very closely together in the trade area between Mrs. Malmstrom and myself. And uh, I think the Japan and the Mexico deals are regarded as good for the European Union. Uh, Of course, there are ongoing negotiations with Mercosur and the sensitivities around agriculture are certainly very important now as efforts are being made to try and conclude an agreement. And they will not be concluded unless we get satisfaction on many of the areas that are in the agricultural area, like the dairy sector, like geographical indications, like the standards in respect of the sanitary and phytosanitary services. And we get a balanced outcome in relation to some of the concessions that we're expected to make, particularly around beef and ethanol. So it's a balance that must be struck in any of the negotiations. But agriculture is always centre stage in a successful outcome. And is your strategy that you get involved from the get-go in those discussions or do you more come in towards the end? I'm thinking we've had the Australians here this week, the New Zealanders are coming to town and obviously it'll be an issue again with them, but I just don't know how these things work. Well, we first of all have to get a mandate from the Council Mm -hmm. and the Parliament for whatever negotiations we're going to carry out on behalf of the the co-legislators. Therefore, we're involved from the beginning Mm -hmm. in identifying the sensitive areas in agriculture in any of those negotiations. Of course, it'll be beef in Australia. It'll be geographical indications in Australia and New Zealand. So these are all reflected in the negotiating mandate that the Council and the Parliament give to the Commission. Now, maybe turning to Brexit, a bit of a sad topic for a lot of people in Brussels, but you've been very vocal, you've been active, you've been pretty eloquent, I would say, <coughs> on the topic. Where are we at now in those discussions? Are you like me and most other people where you thought the Brits did actually have a bit of a strategy and now you're wondering what the hell is going on? Well, I think the European Union has displayed a remarkable unity and patience with the United Kingdom in relation to the Brexit negotiations. We're still waiting after two years for clarity and for a comprehensive white paper that will outline solutions to the many issues that have been well highlighted over the last two years. shows that there was no real proper debate in the United Kingdom in relation to the implications of the decision that they were about to make on the 23rd of June 2016. So the real economy in the UK is now beginning to speak up for the first time in a substantial way, like Airbus in recent weeks and uh, Jaguar Land Rover. Mm -hmm. So it's a wake-up call for the United Kingdom now to get down to serious business about solving these particular practical issues in a more pragmatic way. How do you think Mr Barnier is doing? It seems to be going well so far. Well, I think Michel Barnier and the task force has played a major role in ensuring the unity of the European Union in relation to the negotiating mandate. And all of the people that were hard Brexiteers that predicted 
the fragmentation of the European Union's position in relation to Brexit must be very disappointed at this stage with how matters have developed. So I think that the consistency and unity of the European Union's message has been really brought about by the very transparent system and structure that has been put in place by Michel Barney and his team. And I think this is very much appreciated as well by all European leaders, and I know this is very much appreciated by Ireland. And we have, I mean, not to bring it too much back to Ireland, because it's, it's always said that you're not there to represent Ireland around the Commission table, it's just the country you know best and the same for all of the others. But is it particularly hard to separate those feelings and emotions and interests on something that cuts so close to the bone for how Ireland operates and how its communities are structured? Well, I suppose an Irish commissioner and a former member of the Irish government is in a very unique position to help all commissioners to understand the sensitivities around the island of Ireland and the Good Friday Agreement. Mm. I was born at a time when I remembered a lot of difficulties uh, and troubles uh, in Northern Ireland. Painstaking work over 30 years uh, helped to resolve this in 1998 with the Good Friday Agreement. And I don't think anybody would be thanked if we didn't point out to the United Kingdom and indeed uh, inform our European colleagues about the sensitivities, the background and the difficulties that all of that had, period of time had had for ordinary people and for business. So we are now in a position where I think everybody is fully informed. Everybody understands uh, in the European Union the importance of this issue for peace in the European Union as well as in the island of Ireland. I think the United Kingdom are growing to realise that there will not be an agreement with the, these negotiations of Brexit unless there is satisfaction from the point of view of the island of Ireland as outlined in the negotiating guidelines in April 2017 uh, by Enda Kenny and subsequently endorsed and promoted by Leo Radker. Uh, so I, I think that the unity and solidarity that has been shown in the Irish issue demonstrates that there is a high level of awareness of the importance of this politically, not just for Ireland but for the European Union and that's very much appreciated by the Irish people. Speaking of Ender Kenny, he's been very quiet recently and it made me wonder, is he really out of the game of politics or is he resting for potentially a new opportunity in 2019? Like, people are really respectful of Ireland's role in the European Union and I think that's been coming out during all this Brexit process. So I was wondering if you had any views on whether he'd be a good candidate to be the, the council president or the, the commission president. Not that I want to do you out of a job, uh, but... <laughs> Have you, have you been talking to him? Have you got any views on whether he'd be good in one of the top jobs here? No, I think that Enda uh, Kenny has a lot of political experience. He's been 16 years leader of his political party, six years Prime Minister of Ireland, and he is, he is well known and well respected by all of the leaders of the European Union. And of course, whatever job he wishes to consider in the European Union, he would be eminently qualified and suitable to do so. But I, I haven't been speaking about his intentions in recent times. Phil Hogan, thank you for joining us on EU Confidential. Welcome. That was Commissioner Phil Hogan. Next up, the Brussels Brains Trust of Alva Finn and Lena Abarus. And now it's time to welcome back the podcast panel. Welcome, Alva. Yeah, good morning, Ryan. <laughs> Sorry, I was like, I thought you were missing <laughs> me. I did. Welcome, Alva. That was it. it. Uh, welcome, Lena. <laughs> welcome back, <laughs> Alva, Ryan. Well, good I'm morning. not going to pretend that I'm not losing track of time here as we roll on into summer. It feels like a very, very long week. Let's lighten it up or let's kick it off at the very least with an EU thumbs up. Alva, you have a nomination. 
Yes, I'm nominating the fact that Ireland is to become the first country in the world to fully divest from fossil fuels. And this means the government is divesting. Norway have partially divested from fossil fuels. But yeah, I wanted to put that out on the table because I think the only way to change the market is to put stress on it, to make a threat towards it, that you you need to be thinking more about how you're affecting the planet. I think it's a great, but I think it's a lot of uh, PR for Ireland. I mean, the objective is extremely super high. I wonder if Ireland is angling for the votes of all the small island states affected by climate change in its new (laughs) UN Security Council campaign. Do you think that could be a factor, Alva? I definitely think do, but also it is it. I mean, the fact that it's been taken as a bill means that at some point it will happen. So, in a way, that's a big statement. Most countries won't do that. So I think we can say it's good PR, but it was also a decision taken by the House. And we don't see very many other governments doing it. Mm -hmm. I do think, yes, everything is about your standing, but it's also about caring about the planet. Now, I do hope that they also extend that into how they treat, for example, the beef lobby and the beef industry. Yeah, beef is very bad for the environment uh, because of all the methane and all the water it takes to grow cows. Um, But where is Ireland getting its energy from then? What, you know, they say they're divesting from these investments in fossil fuels, but you've got to get your energy from somewhere. Sure. And I think, well, we've invested a lot in, for example, wind. We've got a lot of wind in Ireland and they also want to do. Um, yeah, yeah, but where do you get it from now? I mean, we get it from where everybody else gets it. Um, so you're still invested in fossil fuels, really? Well, I suppose the consumers are invested in it. And that's the thing. There's a, a, diff- a lot of different ways, I think, to change how we consume things but we also need to change the industry itself and if no one is going to the industry and saying you have to think of a way to diversify how you make money and it can't just only be through fossil fuels then you know there's lots of different strategies i don't think any country in the world has figured out yet how to be completely independent of fossil fuels <laughs> least of all Ireland which is a small island state even the island states still use oil and gas you know so I don't think that's something that you can point the finger at, at Ireland about and yeah it's doing stuff about its renewables but I think this is a positive step. Lena, you're from the Middle East do you think anyone is going to do anything other than shrug there? having heard this news from Ireland? <laughs> Not at all, I don't think so. But there are there are some serious companies in the Middle East, uh, especially energy companies, that they are thinking of alternative ways in renewable energy. And they are investing a lot in research and getting more expertise from Europe and around the world. But it will take us a long, long time, I believe. And I wonder, final thought, should we be more nuanced in our attitude to fossil fuels? You know, I think there is a difference between dirty brown coal and natural gas, for example. Now, they're both fossil fuels, but I wouldn't equate the two of them. I think they have different impacts on the environment, and they are all in a category that is worse for the environment than renewables, obviously. But should we ever take account of those distinctions as we move to this energy transition? Of course we should, because the whole world now is trying to protect the planet. Everyone is, most most of the world, if I'm but and everyone has have, have their own agenda and um, and each one is trying to to really set the goals like just Ireland has done so there is a distinguish and of course there is a way that the countries should be learning from one another and advising one another on this topic because it's not poetic that we only have this planet and we only have this world to really protect 
but there should be a sort of more communication among the countries. So what Ireland has just done, I think it's inspiring for other countries and we should watch to see this happening. Mm-hmm. Alva wants action, she doesn't want poetry. But let's move to some poetry from Margreta Vestaga, aka the EU's tax lady. I think this is a bit of an EU LOL moment. We had President Trump of the United States saying that the tax lady was to be feared. And she came with a very good comeback yesterday as she went about fining Google 4.3 billion euros or 5 billion US dollars. She said, yes, I fact-checked the first half of the statement. I am a woman and I do deal with tax. But actually, I love the US. Are we buying it? Maybe she does like the US. There's, I think the US is a very complex place with a, a lot of differing views. Lots of people in Europe and the EU love the Democrats. You know, they loved Obama. They were allies now. They're foes on the, on the side of Trump because he famously now has just said that the EU is a foe. Um, so I think there's so many different sides to the US and maybe she does like some of the sides. But I think it's just... He just keeps breaching protocol like this, doesn't he? He really shows in everything that he says how, how he thinks about women. You know, using the possessive to Junker, your tax lady. He couldn't be, even be bothered to say her name. And yeah, it's great that she's coming back and just kind of <laughs> being a little bit snarky. I love that. She did it in a very classy way and a very leadership. She projected all sorts of soft power, but very powerful. I don't know how we can put it together. And uh, she explained that she's Danish and the Danish, they do like the US. Now, speaking of protocol, I think I'd like to introduce an EU WTF. It feels like it was weeks ago now. Actually, it was six days ago. And it relates to Jean-Claude Juncker, president of the European Commission, participating in the NATO summit last week. He caused a big controversy because he was in a wheelchair at various moments and then he was unable to stay stable on his feet during a much broader discussion that we need to have about an extremely surreal entertainment performance for the leaders at the summit. So the accusation is that Juncker was drunk during that ceremony. He says it was back pain. It strikes me very much as a situation where his team should have been taking better care of him, whatever the reason was. But I'm going to turn to you, Lena, because you have worked in the protocol team for the Royal Household of Jordan. So as a protocol officer, what would you have been doing knowing that Juncker was unable to to stand and fully participate in that event? When you are working with a VIP, when you're working with a head of state or a very high profile personality, you have a certain team that they always take care of of you because you need to focus on what's important on your agenda on the content on negotiations on building relationships and partnerships now it was really striking that none of his team was around him you have a protocol team you have the security team you have an admin team you have his personal assistant his cabinet is full of people and i wonder When we have summits and he is in the middle of these big events, you always see them sitting in the back, but none of them jumped, none of them looked at his face to say, okay, there are certain moves that we are trained to do in this and there are some words and there are some kind of internal communication among the team to immediately protect your leader and make sure that such situations should not occur. Well, it was obvious to the other leaders. They uh, had to step him, hold him up, move him up and down the stairs. So it was evident to the people who were nearby. It, it lasted more than two minutes. And in two minutes, 
the whole team couldn't talk to each other to send someone to say, okay, excuse me, we're going to escort him. It was the really the problem. The problem predates that, though. I mean, if you have severe back pain or you've been drinking too much, you weren't doing it in the two minutes before you hit the stage. That's something that builds up over time. That's my criticism of that team that's surrounding Juncker. Alva, you're someone who has worked in health issues for a long time. How do you react to those scenes? Yeah, I think I would be very careful about talking about someone's mental health in the way that sometimes people here in the Brussels bubble do. Lots of people would have laughed at that. I don't think it's a matter for laughing. I think it's, you know, mental health is stigmatized already so much. And the idea that people are laughing at Juncker as a result of this, I do absolutely agree with you that something should have been handled. But we do talk about people's health. I remember this famous thing about Hillary Clinton, you know, when she was running for president, she had a moment of of a health weakness and everybody pointed to it and was like, I just don't enjoy this aspect of the speculation, etc. If someone is in a wheelchair, does it really show weakness? To me, it doesn't. Yeah, and I, I just wish it wasn't fodder the way it is for the media. And that's kind of what I have to say about it. I do think probably his protocol team need to follow up on this and think really about, because it is in the end all about optics. I wish it wasn't. Where but does may- the transparency argument come in? Because there are cultural differences here, where in the United States, the situation would be that if you held a position like Juncker, you, the expectation is you simply release your medical records. We have some independent information to assess the things that we see. Here in Europe, a lot of people will fob you off and just say, that's private. You're not allowed to ask questions. And we're certainly not going to release any information. And and I don't know where I stand in that debate. Yeah, I mean, I think the people's health issues is a private matter, to be honest. Many, many people throughout the years, I think, have had drinking issues or, or mental health issues. Does that mean you're deficient in some way? I don't know. And does it mean that you can't lead? I don't know. But I think that if we start running down that road, you know, where does it go? If you've had too many drinks on a on a Thursday and you come into the office on a Friday hungover, is that grounds for people to start speculating about your mental health and how you can do your job? It's a slippery slope for me. And I would prefer if we maintained this European focus on your private life, to be honest. Maybe we've got time for one quick extra WTF reference, the one that you've all already been thinking about. It's Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin at the Helsinki summit. You know, I don't think that that was shocking. A lot of people have used the word shocking. I think it's very predictable that Trump would do something like that. He's been doing it nonstop since he got elected. But I do think that Putin ran rings around him. And what I'm a little bit shocked by is, A, that it took so long for some American journalists to kind of realize that that's how the rest of the world is seeing Trump, because they had to sit on foreign soil and witness that performance. But then also the rather incredible justifications afterwards, where not even Fox News could rationalize what he'd been doing to a large extent. And so then you get these walkbacks where it's like, oh, I actually meant the opposite of what I was saying. Would or wouldn't? Oh, who knows? I find it an insult to most people's intelligence. Yeah, I mean, it's an insult to the intelligence agency, I think. And it's also an insult to the intelligence of the people who got Trump where he is. So many Republicans came out saying, you know, this is absolutely unacceptable to be pandering to what is a hostile government in this way. He has just given everything to Putin. The only thing I suppose they didn't agree on was the Ukraine, the annexation of Ukraine, which I'm sure the Ukrainians were happy to see didn't. But isn't that itself amazing that they didn't even talk about the main 
issues that they should have been talking about? Yeah. I mean, they didn't talk about the conflicts worldwide. They didn't talk about solutions. They didn't talk about poverty with, n- not to mention climate change, of course, God forbid for these two uh, men to get sense of the continuity on the planet. They didn't. I mean, I don't want to talk about Russia, but for the Americans to have this uh, super powerful democratic system that they go and they vote and they had the chance to elect and choose their own president, poor people, I don't know what more is waiting for them. Uh, we have another two years, so it, it, it is... Or maybe six years. Let's <laughs> not get ahead of ourselves. Well, let's, <laughs> let's, let's please not, uh, not, not go that way. It's still Thursday. We need to be very hopeful today, <laughs> Ryan, and... Uh, Optimistic. And all of you listening, you're about to go on holiday. So I think we need to give you a break and let you get down to the beach, get to the lake, get to the mountains, wherever it is that you're going for your summer break. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of EU Confidential. Thanks, Alva. Thanks, Lena. It's always a pleasure. And remember, wherever you found this episode of EU Confidential, take a minute to rate, review, or subscribe to it. You'll never have to look for it again. It will just come to you like magic. And podcasting is a team effort. So, of course, thanks to Nicole Fallett, Andrew Gray, and Wei Dong Lin. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.